this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan, host of I Change Justice podcast. And with me today is Irene Morgan, the founder of the Restorative Community Coalition. Welcome to the call, Irene. Hi, thank you, Joy. Once again, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm eager to impart more information. Awesome. Today, I have a couple of questions for you. The first one is I want you to just go over the last you know, just roughly your learning curve over the last 16 years, you're coming up on an anniversary of when you founded the coalition, which was December 27th, correct? 2006. 2006. And now it's 2023. So it's been many years and you started out working one angle of the reentry project. And we've over the years moved and morphed and become to the point where you're now even working with people to get expungements done. So the first section, I just want to talk briefly about what have you learned over the course of the last 16 years about humans and the human issues that we're dealing with a, a domination system that ends up with mass incarceration around the country. And then the second part of the call, I'd really like you to talk more specifically about expungements, how do they work, what are some of your clients and what are some of the stories all the way along that you'd like to share with us? So take it away, Irene. What about the last six years is so remarkable that you've been learning more and more about all the way as um, you've learned it. Thank you. And thanks to everybody tuning in. It's, it's really important that um, there's so many subjects I know nothing or little about. And so I, I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to impart the information and the learnings that, that I have taken in and projects I've taken on with the coalition over these last 16 years. And I've been doing this for a lot longer than 16 years. I've known there was something not wrong for a long, long time. Wasn't able to put my finger on it. And the more I got my fingers in it and on it, the more it became a whole body situation because it's so vast and so convoluted. It, it, and it doesn't make common sense because it is not common sense. The system works. It works for the system. It does not work for those folks going through it that all think they are going into a justice system. And that's where I'm going to stop with that. Um, sure. So when you started out, you were working in other nonprofits for a long time, and you were writing letters to people who were incarcerated. So you've been communicating with people incarcerated for decades now. Is that correct? Yeah, 30 years or more. And um, I had a friend who had brothers in inside, and I don't even remember who all. I mean, I've just been doing some purging in my home because I've lived here a long, long time. And I'm finding all this stuff that I had completely forgotten about. I've just moved on from project to project to project. 
and I'm finding all these things that uh, that I've done that I've just done and done because they needed to be done and then moved on. So um, it was early in the second year, probably early 2008, when I realized that our biggest goal and uh, my biggest goal after I realized it was to educate the public because there's so much to the system that is believed about the system that absolutely does not exist. You and mean you're saying there's a lot of things that it, people have beliefs about there how are belief works? systems yeah. that people have because we've been conditioned by our media to believe these things that that we have a justice system that is for and by the people and it's not it's for the corporations it's for the incarceration system the systems are set up for success for the system and we are oh. we are conditioned to believe in my belief that we're free the justice system works the way it should. The people are are treated fairly in the courts. And I don't see that. And I've been to hundreds of court hearings. So what you're talking about, though, is there's a disparity. Believe what's true and what is not true. There's also a disparity be between what people, how the system appears to work and we're sold the story that it's worked by TV shows, by media by the politicians political, by the political yep. officials there's this whole context of belief that is not even connected to what's real and yet at the same time you and i both know that there are people who absolutely do need to go into this into some kind of incarceration system so it's not that you're opposed to having jails or prisons it's the way they're managed and controlled in the story that goes along with them that creates the challenge for you. Is that correct? Yes. I I know there are bad folks out there that, that have done horrific things. And I, I, and I want to make this perfectly clear. I condone no wrong action. I condone no one being hurt or, or property stolen. I condone none of that. And, but what I do I've observed it over and over. And if you sit in the courtroom or if you pay any attention to how how individual cases come through, you'll know that there's what they call, um, oh my gosh. Um, well, we call, on the street, we call them stacking of charges. And, and but in the courtroom, there, it's called probable cause. And anyone with probable cause, or anytime you commit a, a crime, and and most people have done something wrong, or at least I would say the majority of people have have done something wrong. I'm not saying they've broken a law necessarily, but they've done something that was not uh, wise. And 911 is called, and and the police show up, and because this might have happened, then that's what the prosecutor writes down. And it's a probable cause. It's not necessarily a violation that the person actually did. 
So in other words, let me be very clear around that because there's language that people have in the public eye that people will call every, and if somebody got arrested, they'll often say, well, they must have committed a crime or they wouldn't have been arrested. That may or may not be a true statement. It may be accurate that something happened that was an emergency and that caused an accident or somebody got hurt and somebody called 911 to get help for the people involved. That's right. They, they may or may not have called to get the police. They, In many cases, they're calling to get first responder or, you know, uh, emergency help for someone. Someone ha- is having a mental situation going on. And even doctors have told their clients, who are also our clients, to call 911 if they have something go askew. And we have a client, a, a former client, who actually had a, a medical, a mental uh, issue going on. And the mom did what she was told to do to call 911. And by the time the, the two sheriff's deputies got into Bellingham, he had three felonies because he did not, he was having an emergency medical situation mental medical situation and yet they then he was charged with three felonies because he didn't want to go with them he didn't want to go where he was supposed resisting to be arrest i know but where he was supposed to be going in the first place was to get mental health help that's right and they didn't take him for mental health help and because he wasn't willing to go with the police to mental health he ended up being charged with resisting arrest, which isn't what it started out to be. It started out to be a mental health or wellness check or a a mental health need that should have been responded to differently. But because the system is set up as it did, it led to a whole bunch of other problems, which ended up ultimately with disastrous consequences for him And, and his family. And in many cases, these kinds of cases where they have been arrested for something. And by the time they get to court, there's two or three or maybe six other things added to it. So this is the the probable cause, the adding the things to it that might have happened so that they make sure they get everything. And then when someone goes to court, they're asked often to to plea bargain to something they didn't do, which is usually a felony and because the bail is set so high, they can't get out because they don't have the funds. Then they sit there and sit there and sit there. And maybe they're maybe they're not mentally ill. Maybe they've ha- had a, a situation going on with a boss or a spouse or something. And they have a job. They have children. They have a home that they're paying mortgages on. By the time they get out, they've lost all of that. So, so let me let me back up to probable cause for a minute because there's a lot of confusion around that also. Is that just because you were at the scene of some accident or something happening does not mean you're convicted of a crime. It means that you were at the scene of an accident and the police may have arrested you to take you in for checking out or review or whatever. But once you're taken into police custody, there's an incident report of some kind written and that becomes the precursor to charging documents. And the charging documents 
can be and are typically written by the prosecutor's office based upon the information provided in the police report, even though the prosecutor who's writing these charging documents was never at the scene of the of the situation and did not interview these people. They're writing up a secondary report based upon the way that the law enforcement officer wrote the report at the scene. Exactly. And you, um, uh, that's, that's correct. And uh, the former prosecutor, David McEachran, told us publicly that he he himself personally went through every case and decided what it would be charged how it would be charged so this was this was totally the at prosecutorial discretion and so one of the things that we discovered from that is that what's possible is that if a prosecutor reads a report, he can say, oh, we could charge him with this, or we could charge him with that, or we could charge him with this. And because we could have probable cause for any one of these, not that the evidence has been collected or that nope. it's there, Yep. but it's because it could be there. They make two or three or four charging recommendations to give the prosecutor more room to negotiate with the person who got arrested. Is that yeah, and that's and that's what we on the street call stacking of charges that most people don't ever have an opportunity to have all of those stacked charges taken away. They and usually, so they usually but, are forced to plead guilty to something they didn't do. And and I know I'm I would get um, pushback from a lot of folks on this, but I've I've worked with lots of people. Yeah, and that's that's the usual story. So what we found was clear back in 2015, we wrote a report to the taxpayers where we listed 15 different ways that the excessive charging of people could be affected by the way the stacking of charges or the the conditions or the citations could be written, which could lead to a maladministration of justice down the road. That's the bottom line of this conversation. Um, but what it does is it gives the prosecutor an, an extraordinary advantage to choose what kind of charges could be brought. And then it gives the prosecutors a way to negotiate with the people who've been accused to try to figure out how to get them to plead out. There's 95% plead out rate that the prosecutor has talked about in Whatcom County. So people end up getting convicted or because they plead out to a charge so they can get out of jail and go home. Oftentimes these people are convicted and end up in the jail serving time for things that may or may not have been proven to have happened, have been proven in any kind of a court of law. It's a business transaction and a plea agreement is struck. And many go on to prison with a felony record that they seldom get rid of because they don't know how to do it. And I want to talk more about that and expungement of records later on. Well, let's take a quick break right now, Irene, and we'll come back and talk about expungements and how that works and what that term means. Okay. Back in a moment. Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition.
a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at the restorativecommunity.org. Welcome back to the I Change Justice podcast. This is Joy Gilfillan, your host. Hey, Irene, I know that in the past 16 years, we've done all kinds of things from court navigator work, reentry work, uh, restorative justice work, mentoring work and training, healing and reconciliation work. But expungements is something new to the list of things that the restorative community coalition does in working with direct services with clients go ahead and talk to us about what is expungements and why is it now a big deal for you and for us at the restorative community coalition and for the community thank you it's um well i've just been poking my nose around all this time i'm i'm pretty curious about things and so i just um, kept watching as people continue to have issues with the system and thinking they're they're done. They've served their time. They've either in jail or in prison. And and I, I want to say too, while I'm remembering it, one of the early early things that I realized was the vast loss of human potential that happens when someone is incarcerated, they go in, they get totally sidetracked. They're, they're redesigned by the system, uh, mentally, physically, emotionally. And, and they, some of the, some of the brightest people I've met have been incarcerated. And it's, it's just, it's appalling how much, and and a case in point is our poster child, Shanae. She's, she's brilliant, and she's got all this wonderful aptitude, and she, she has helped us over and over again, and, and yet she spent 14 years of her life in jail and prison, and when she could have been helped along and given the, the tools that she could have used as a teenager and then in an early early adulthood and wouldn't have gone had to go through all that learning process of hardship so um with my curiosity i started the court navigator training several years ago now and wrote the um the program to be able to do that so others can can be trained and learn how to do that and recently, and and as I've been going through and, and talking with folks, I find out that that their records get in their way. They can't get housing. They they can't get better jobs. They can't get they can't go to the refinery. They have to have a certain clearance. And if you've got a record, that has to be 
um, taken care of before they can go get a better job, at least in that field. And it, it shows up everywhere. And um, it also shows up with people not being able to get licenses, whether it's driver's licenses exactly. or professional licenses, professional licenses, yeah, especially or career or career things. Oftentimes, yep. the record predisposes you to not be able to get through the first gap or the first gate of hiring. So exactly. So I I started look at looking at expungement, and that's um, vacating of. Um, records criminal records and there are there's misdemeanors now there's gross misdemeanors and they're taken care of in a different way than your felony records and then you have your um native courts who do it a completely different way and your muni courts do it a different way you mean municipal courts? municipal yeah. yeah all your all your small cities have their courts and if you get a fine or a ticket and, and have um, legal financial obligations to those courts, then they do it a completely different way. So it's very convoluted. And that's, um, that's the same way it is with reducing your fines or, or um, getting rid of your fines. I found that out when I helped a woman um, do that process. And that's, an, that's another whole, it, they're completely different systems that you have to learn and, and go through the court process in completely different ways. So it's very convoluted. It's very time consuming. And most people get frustrated because of the complexity of it that they give up. And then the next time they decide to get a different job or they want to change apartments or want to go get a loan to buy a house, there's that record again, staring them in the face and and stopping their progress. So really, one of the reasons why, I mean, court navigation and removing LFOs and legal and financial obligations are helping people to navigate through the legal system because of excessive charges. That's one thing. But expungements is a little bit different. That's something that happened. There's or maybe there's two different levels of expungements. The people who you're trying to remove records just because it's legally allowed to do that. But there's also expungements that went came into place because of legal issues that showed up in the last couple of years. And oftentimes people think that because the law was passed to allow an expungement that it automatically happens and it doesn't. Oh, there's so, so many people that that <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten. Uh, one of the women that I just talked to actually said that she said she thought she spoke that oh well those have already been taken care of that's that was automatic right and I says no 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 she says oh yeah she says I think that's automatically taken care of I says no it's not nothing is automatic you have to start the wheel rolling and -hmm. you've got to finish it before it's done and you Mm -hmm. can vacate you can expunge or vacate but then there's an, an additional process. Even if you vacate, if if someone goes to your to your record, it's there until you seal it. So there's a two-step process. If you're so gonna vacate, you best seal it. Otherwise, 
anyone can go and find it and they know you have a criminal history. So there's actually three steps. Number one is just knowing that it's possible that certain records can be vacated and expunged because the court, the state of Washington determined that the records and the pun punishment and things was inappropriate or excessive based upon the charges filed. Well, not but necessarily. Number one. Not necessarily. Uh, if, you, if you serve your time and before you can start the expungement process, all your LFOs, your legal financial obligations, your fines, your fees, and your restitution has to be paid. Has to be paid first. Okay. So, and sometimes that's tens of thousands of dollars for some folks. And, um, and those, and, and if they haven't been, um, if they haven't taken care of things, those fines multiply with interest and it's 12, it used to be 12%. I don't know if it still is or not. And I think it hasn't changed. I hope it has, but so it's 12% interest on tens of thousands of dollars can be more than anyone can make a payment on for most people. So in other that, words, so the, the financial obligations have to be taken care of before you can even start the vacate expunge or seal process. So step one is you have to find out whether or not whatever happened to you could be expunged. Then number two, you got to make sure that all your LFOs are taken care of and off the record so you can even qualify to start the process of application. Yep. Then you have to go in and you have to figure out which court and which system and which method of expungement like what are the steps one, two, three to get through that particular court? And if you're related to two or three different courts, you may have to do expungement in multiple courts. Over and over and over. Yep. And the series of getting expungements done. I remember the first time you came to the office and you said, my gosh, nobody even knows how to get it done. Everybody says in the court system, oh, it can be done. But, but you told me, I, I, I tried to figure out how to do it, and people couldn't tell me. So I'm having to go dig it up and figure it out myself. And, and the reason they can't tell you is they can't give you legal advice. I, I even asked a question of, of one of the people in the, in the clerk's office. I says, so on question number blah, 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 and she says, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's stop right there. I can't answer any of those questions. I cannot give you legal advice. I says, I'm not asking for legal advice. I'm asking, and she says, I can't answer any of those questions. So you have to know the law. You have to be an attorney, or you have to have done it by the seat of your pants, like I've been doing, and um, and that's how I seem to do things. And uh, so when we when we start, you have to not be interrupted you have to have a clear mind and go through each question with with the client so that there's no um mistakes and and this the current client i've met with three times and and before you can even start the the vacate or expungement process there has to be a certain amount of time that elapses from the actual court date so there's three years, there's five years, there's seven years, and there's 10 years. So it depends on uh, firearms. Well, I'm not going to say because I'm not sure, but I know that, that this particular 
case, there has to be five years elapsed before you can even start the expungement process. You mean so, from the time that the person left court or this law was passed? was sentenced was sentenced. OK, yep. yep. So let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and ask a couple more questions. Thank you to our donors whose contributions help our clients directly. You can see the sponsors list and the names of donors and members who are publicly recognized on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. All contributions are appreciated. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, volunteer, donate monthly, or leave a legacy gift by clicking on the donate button. Welcome back, Irene Morgan. You're the founder of the Restorative Community Coalition. And today's conversation is about the complications involved in, in expungements. How do we get it done? What have you learned in working with people to get several expungements, multiple expungements through the system in the last while since some of the state laws were passed that allowed it to happen? Well, it's, it's exciting in a way for me because uh, I'm, I'm an elder and I'm learning something new and I'm helping people again. And um, we did, we helped uh, someone from a native tribe and it was the first expungement that had been done in that particular court. And the elders were so excited to be able to release their family member of their burdens so that they could actually go on and live their life without this intrusion showing up when they least expected it. Well, so what happens with that is you're talking about courts, you're talking about rules, legal rules by the Washington state systems, you're talking about municipal or court systems, and then you're also talking about behaviors within tribal hierarchies that allow people to actually get expungements. That's a little bit different than working in our Whatcom County courts, for example, or muni courts. Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. They, they just have a different, the elders are, are involved to allow the, the person to be free of, of whatever it is that they're looking to be free of, whereas the judge is totally responsible in, in our municipal courts and our, our uh, jurisdictions. So if you're talking about expungements, what's the difference between an expungement and let's say a vacation or a. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I, when I say expungement, they know I want to vacate. So I don't know if that's interchangeable, but sealing is a completely different. There's, there's different um, paperwork that has to be filled out. And, and um, so that's actually sealing the record so no one can go back behind it. Yes. But yes. then there's another process that you've worked with that has to do with quashing of warrants. How is that different? Well, that's that's when you go to court, maybe a failure to appear. There's there's several different ways you can you can have a warrant put out for your arrest. But I think the most common one is failure to appear in court. Sometimes the people are not even aware that they have a court date and and we we observed that in a courtroom just within the this last year when someone was in the courtroom with us that knew four or five people who were supposed to be in court 
And they contacted them in that moment and said, did you know you had a court appointment? And none of them knew about it. None of them. So it's not just a happenstance. It happens often. So those all got failure to appears. So they, um, and there's a warrant put out for their arrest. And if they don't go in, and I'm not even sure where they go. Um, I know that I, I went to, I went to the courthouse with someone that, then this was years ago. And, and the worst to, to get this warrant quashed. And all it is is showing up and saying that, that um, you're aware and, and I, and give your excuse or your reason why you didn't show up. And uh, so that, so that you're not then arrested on the street and put in jail and start all over again and have one more charge on your record. So sometimes it's a paper failure to appear. It's a paper notice that you didn't receive. It's an, it's a phone call that you didn't actually get from because maybe you lost your phone and the answer yep. machine didn't take the notice. Yep. Things can happen that affect the paperwork process of going through um, a problem. And if there's a failure within that system, you can end up with an arrest warrant. And that's what causes and sparks a lot of these transgressions that actually, depending on where you are in a probation or, you know, or situation of release supervision can actually throw you back in the prison system. Absolutely. Yep. And so quashing. And I, and I had a, a case years ago, uh, the guy got out of jail and I was there waiting for him and I was parked on the corner on the South corner of the courthouse. And, um, and he said, I've got to go to city hall or to the Bellingham police department. And I've got to go, um, to the, to the sheriff's office, which was just around the corner, just a block around the corner. And the, the, um, Bellingham police station was two blocks down, down the street. And for some reason, he, he decided to go to the Bellingham police department first. So he went down there. And left his paperwork. And this is what other people or most people don't realize. These folks are so traumatized that they, they, they often don't track well. And by that, I mean, they don't know what to do first or, or they can't remember what they've done. And so they do some crazy things that don't make sense. And it's because they're, they're filled with trauma and um, uh, anxiety and they just, they don't know what's coming next. They don't know what's coming around the corner for him. So he left his paperwork on the counter at the Bellingham police station and had to run back and get it. And, and then he came up and we went around the corner to the sheriff's office. And he went in there and found out if he had not gone to the Bellingham police department first, when he went into the sheriff's office, they would have arrested him because he had a warrant out for his arrest that he did not know about. Probably, and this has happened, he was in jail and didn't show up for court. Now sure. that happens. Yeah, we had another case like that. Yeah. A woman who, who yeah. was actually in a treatment center. Treatment center, and the prosecutor and the defense all knew about it, but because if the paperwork wasn't properly filed to excuse her from going to court, 
it became a violation and yeah. he ended up having to spend days in jail when she was finally brought out again because she didn't show up for court. Well, she didn't show up for court because she was in treatment. And the first time I heard that that happened, I didn't believe it was possible. It just yeah. didn't make any sense to me. And this is where the public comes in. This is why the uh, I've been told that I'm just a flat out liar that this doesn't happen. Or like you said, well, they must have done something wrong. Yeah, and it's not true because I now, in the beginning, Irene, I, when I used to go with you to some of these court appearances and started to navigate this, I remember going, how could that happen? Isn't there a checklist? Isn't there a list that the judge needs to give them or that the clerk who's there needs to give them about what do they actually have to do to follow the rules? And there's no such list. And so they, what happened? But there is, there is a term for that, and it's called housekeeping. I understand. Yes. And yeah. the fact of the matter is it's not given to the client. So yeah. the client who's leaving the courtroom doesn't know where to go, doesn't have a checklist for what to do next, is traumatized, doesn't know which office he's going to or which court he has to go to next. So he walks out with no records and then he doesn't know where to go. And without a court navigator with him, without a mentor with him, without somebody to help them navigate through the system a witness fail a witness often i have i have gone in being the witness and and made sure that probation or um the defender knows that i was there and i saw it which yeah. which sometimes makes a difference yeah it can make a huge difference especially in somebody's life and if and, you don't have a computer, you can't you can't go online and find out when your when your next court appearance is. Like one client that we had, he just happened to be adept enough to go in and find find, and he had to search and search and search, and finally there it was. And um, he he made it to court. I think it was the next Monday morning or something. Otherwise, he would have been rearrested. And so the problem of paperwork. And the problem of tracking people when they have been traumatized and when they don't understand, because there's another problem and that has to do with language and not understanding what different words mean inside the system. Yep. So just like you and I were talking on this call about not understanding the difference between this word, this word, and this word, they have completely different meanings depending upon which court system they're, they're in, which, um, case they're dealing with, which charges are filed. I mean, there's a lot of complications just dealing with the paperwork of someone's situation once they get caught in the law and justice system. So do you have something else you want to talk to us about with regards to some of the expungements or some of the biggest issues that we're dealing with today in the court system? With Because I know you've been working with quite a few different people and you've also been writing and hearing from a lot of different people who are inside the prison system trying to get out or knowing that they're staying in and they're writing about the financial problems that they're dealing with inside or the COVID problems that they're dealing with inside. You want to speak to that? You've got a few more minutes here. Well, there's, there's lots of trauma and I know traumas, the word trauma is thrown around a lot, but um, folks, when they're, in a incarcerated situation, they they have very little rights. They don't open any doors. They're all opened for them and closed behind them. 
in most instances, and if you're in a, um, uh, not a, a trustee role, you're usually have a little more freedom. And there's just a lot of chaos. Uh, things are not always the same and they switch things around they being the authorities and the, the prisons and and it's to confuse people and keep people on edge and most of it is and i know there are some some places that are better than others but overall the incarceration system is not there to help people it's there to it's a punitive network it's actually there to move people through the paperwork checklist that the justice system yep. manages yep so it's a system of checks that help the people employed by the system stay within the rules that they have to live by based upon the bureaucratic list of things that need to do but it it doesn't necessarily interface with the people who are on the other side of the system who have to comply with those rules. So, cause they don't have a way to even track all that stuff. They don't have a way to keep track of it and they don't have any way to understand the language or any way to get to information that can help them help themselves through the system. So it becomes very imbalanced, not necessarily because anybody intended certain things to happen, but because there's a drop-off between the people who have information and the people who do not have information. Would you say, would you agree with that? Well, yes, mostly. And the, and I, and I get why people are not allowed to have computers. However, it is, it has changed. Uh, most prisons now are allowing people to have tablets, uh, the electronic tablets. And, um, but it's all done through JPay, which is another huge, corporation who makes who knows how much money every year on electronics it uh and when they have their tablet they can um access certain certain uh information but they can't go online usually what this is doing is giving them an opportunity to at least be familiar with with an electronic gizmo so that when they get out maybe they know the keyboard and, and know a few few things that they can do but um mostly the the tablets and and the jpay is there to make money off their phone calls in florida now they are not allowing any letters to come in handwritten letters or cards you know people used to love to get cards just because the holidays or the birthday or whatever they don't they don't get the cards anymore when if they do arrive by snail mail they take a picture of them and then it goes on their JPay uh, account and goes to them via email and they are charged for it. Whereas if they were just given the card, it would not cost them a penny. So in other no. words, they don't get to touch or no. feel what the person who's, it's all no. electronic, it's very cold. Right. And in fact, I was talking with a person who was trying to um, visit her loved one in prison. She used to be able to get visits and do yep. you know, connect with people. And a lot during the COVID, pe COVID period, they would just randomly close the, the prisons 
And even if they had driven down according to whatever it was beforehand, oftentimes the the prison would close its doors. The person was left out in the cold and unable to go in and visit. And that became a big problem during the COVID period. Yep. Well, what, and then the other thing with the the tablets and the the JPay, the, um, uh, well, when I was writing, uh, on Jody Bergsma, Jody Bergsma donated lots and lots of cards, dozens and dozens, hundreds probably of cards to me over the years. And they all had her artwork on them and the prisoners love them. Yeah. I, I can't send them anymore. Right. Because they just get turned into. They just go in, into an email and I'm assuming they throw the, the hard copy away. So, um, and that's Florida, and I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't spread pretty quickly across the entire nation because it makes them more money. That's the other thing. Every single state in the United States has different laws also. So you've got state laws, you've got federal laws, you've got municipal laws, you've got various kinds of civil and criminal legal systems. And so the chaos that's out there for the average person is... I mean, it's difficult for people who are professionals at navigating the systems, but for somebody who suddenly ends up in the system with no experience at all, it's really vulnerable to a lot of trauma through the system. So you've got about two minutes left, Irene. Do you want to say anything before we close and say thank you to our audience? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited for all the wonderful things that are coming down the pike, uh, Joy, bless her heart, has been working very, very hard, and we've accumulated a lot of new folks. And um, we're going to be expanding and doing the work that that I have envisioned for a long, long time. And I'm I'm very excited to see more and more people get free of this system because it's just wrong the way it um, consumes people's lives and and keeps the trauma and the anxiety fresh and new at almost every turn. One pe- person that I've been working with recently just wants to, to get a um, the passport so she can go across the line and, and visit Bouchard Gardens or, you know, do, do whatever just because she loves, she loves nature and she has a mental health issue and she just wants to be able to be free of this. And she was in a mental health um uh, event when she was arrested and then had all these fines and fees and, and and now seven years later she's finally being able to get rid of her convictions so, so wow well thank you so much Irene thank you for all your diligent volunteer work that you've done for 16 years you work at this pretty much 40 hours a week oh yeah or more and you have helped thousands of people well, you know, the they, ripple effect, they, we uh, don't know what the ripple effect is. Just Don Kirshner's uh, comment about me being the catalyst for him starting the reentry stuff down in Arizona was a shock to me. I had no idea. I read his book and I was inspired and I ran with it. And and then all these years later, he's saying I'm, I'm the one that's at fault. <laughs> you're guilty. You help people. So thank you so much, Irene. Thank you for coming on the call. And for those of you looking for more and more information, our I Change Justice podcasts. Or want to volunteer with us. 
Oh, yeah. We could always use volunteers. We're developing a whole new list of things and ways that people can volunteer now that we're out from underneath the COVID crisis and the emergency restrictions. We've got a lot more things that people can do. Research you can provide. There's a list coming that will be out because the fall season is the time of donations and contributions. We'll be doing a membership drive. There's much more coming because there's a lot of people that are hurting in the aftermath of COVID. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.